time for another history lesson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 34 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing, though not so much today, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. I'm hoping that Book 2 of my series, Meeting the Enemy, will be out in time for holiday gifting. Meeting the Enemy began with Book 1, Terror, which came out in June. Book 2 is Revenge. In Book 1, Alexei Bukharin disappears shortly after the book's beginning. He believes Mai has died in the collapse of the World Trade Center on September 11th, and he has left to exact his revenge on Osama bin Laden. In Book 2, we see how Alexei goes about positioning himself for his revenge, not knowing that Mai is alive and has followed him to Afghanistan and is searching for him. However, her actions while undercover as a CIA operative have caused someone to desire revenge against her, and she gets to exact a little bit of her own revenge. Hence, the title. But Mai and Alexei have some history with Osama bin Laden, and that comprises revenge's backstory, the Soviet-Afghan War from the 1980s. In 1978, Afghanistan's Communist Party took power and began to enact some rather repressive laws to quote-unquote modernize the country, a country that's rich in minerals and poppy plants for the production of heroin. This modernization was highly authoritarian, particularly out in the more traditionally minded countryside, open rebellion against the communist government broke out. The Communist Party in Afghanistan was also split between those who were Kremlin hardliners and those who weren't. The those who weren't category briefly took over power and tried to sever relations with the Soviet Union. The leader of the Soviet Union at that time, Leonid Brezhnev, sent the Soviet 40th Army into Afghanistan on December 24, 1979. The army quickly took Kabul, killed the leader of the softliners, and installed a Soviet loyalist as the country's leader. Now, what's important to remember here is the official quote-unquote religion of the Soviet Union was no religion at all. Officially, Soviets were atheists, though many people secretly attended and followed Russian Orthodox Christianity. However, To Islamic nations around the world, having a godless army in an Islamic country was anathema. The United Nations condemned the invasion, and many countries, including the United States, boycotted the Olympics, which were to be held in Moscow in 1980, 
because of the invasion of Afghanistan. But the U.S. intelligence services saw this as an opportunity for another Cold War proxy war against communism. The U.S. in particular had a long history of funding, supplying expertise and weaponry, and training any insurgent group who was fighting against any form of socialism or communism, particularly in Latin America. But Afghanistan, some thought, offered an opportunity to cripple the Soviet Union that the U.S. couldn't pass up. The Afghani insurgents, who called themselves the Mujahideen, were supported with training, money, and weapons by the U.S. and Britain, by Pakistan, and by the Middle East oil monarchies. The CIA sent advisors who had studied Islam and used Islam to heighten the Mujahideen's enthusiasm for the fight. They made it a religious battle. The Soviets, or Shuravi, as the Afghanis called them, were godless, after all. They had invaded an Islamic country, and they were trying to impose 20th century values over Islam. So in a way, we have the CIA to thank for the Taliban. After all, the CIA taught the Mujahideen all about insurgency. After the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan, Many of the Mujahideen fell under the sway of mullahs and imams who wanted an Islamic caliphate. The Mujahideen still had the weaponry the U.S. Congress was so willing to send them, and they had captured Soviet weapons, including tanks. But the Mujahideen, with this assistance, became a serious insurgency against the Soviet army. Soviet casualties mounted, though that was a secret Brezhnev wanted kept from the Russian people. More troops were sent in. The casualties kept climbing. The Soviet soldiers became increasingly brutal as their morale disintegrated. And the Soviet economy took a beating supporting this war. It was becoming obvious that the Soviet Union might lose and lose badly. To my surprise, as an historian, the very thing that had crippled the Nazi invasion of Russia in World War II, the Russian winter, the Soviet army seemed to have forgotten about. Tanks also are not particularly maneuverable in steep mountains, and Soviet soldiers didn't have the proper footwear or winter clothing. It was sort of like Vietnam, in a way, for the Soviets. They thought they would go in, finish everything up in a few months, install a government loyal to them, and then they would leave. But that didn't happen. They got bogged down in a very long and costly war. Again, this was a reflection of the state of the Soviet economy. It was focused so much on the military and nuclear missiles so that they could be at a par with the United States, that the economy was in a very tenuous state in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and then through the 1980s, with the war in Afghanistan, the economy just crumbled. 
an army deemed by the West to be one of the most powerful on earth, made the mistake of using tactics developed for a war in Central Europe. No one expected to have to use these tactics in a primitive country with a religious devotion that was beyond fervor. Over a decade, though, Soviet leaders came and went, continued the war, bolstered the army with the intent of winning. But in early 1989, Mikhail Gorbachev, who passed away two days ago at the age of 91, ordered the unilateral withdrawal of Soviet troops from Afghanistan. Western intelligence organizations saw that as a victory. And indeed, later that same year, the Berlin Wall fell. Two years after that, the Soviet Union had dissolved into the Russian Federation. The Cold War was over. And as Gorbachev once said, the United States won the Cold War, but it went to their head. The West always credits President Ronald Reagan with ending the Cold War, but in reality, it was the Mujahideen who did it through their wearing down of Soviet morale and by their insurgency forcing the Soviet Union to bankrupt itself trying to win a war. So, what does this have to do with my reader magnet, Prologue to Revenge? Once again, the rough draft of the novel Revenge began in 1982 with Mai and Alexei undercover as UN observers embedded with a Soviet tank unit in Afghanistan. I don't know whether that ever happened. I know the UN sent envoys and diplomats, so we'll just assume some dramatic license on my part for them being undercover as UN observers in the Soviet army. However, again, the structure of a thriller meant I needed to start with action. So I took those opening chapters out and revenge starts with the U.S. bombing of Afghanistan a month after 9-11, which Alexei witnesses as he's thinking about Mai and his half-brother from back in 1982. Wait. Alexei Bukharin had a half-brother? Yes, and we learn about him and the part he plays in Alexei's revenge against Osama bin Laden. Indeed, Alexei has more than one reason to hunt bin Laden after 9-11. Prologue to Revenge explains that and also explains why Mai's distrust and dismay with Alexei deepens as the result of of an old CIA map of the tunnel network in the mountains of Afghanistan. The struggles of the Soviet army against the insurgency known as the Mujahideen is also detailed in Prologue to Revenge, as well as in Revenge, the novel. In addition to Alexei's half-brother Sergei having fought there, so did Alexei's nephew Kolya, Nikolai Antonov, who is with Mai as she hunts Alexei. Yes, it's one of my convoluted plots. But the research took me back to the 1980s when I followed the Soviet-Afghan war via the news 
from an historian's and a political scientist's perspective. Even back then, I suspected that war, once it became prolonged, would become the downfall of the Soviet Union, and it was. The trouble is, Russia didn't learn from this mistake, unlike the U.S. with Vietnam. The same things that stymied the Soviet army in Afghanistan, a determined enemy fighting within their own country with weapons, strategic and intelligence assistance from other countries, are setting the Russian army up for defeat in Ukraine today. Anyway, it was a fascinating time in history, and I've tried to capture a bit of it in both Prologue to Revenge, The Reader Magnet, and the novel Revenge. Writing Prologue to Revenge in particular revived my history research skills, and I did end up going down a lot of rabbit holes and reading some fascinating stuff. Like, did you know that after the Soviets pulled out, there was an Afghan civil war? At least to me, it's fascinating. Now, time for a commercial. Prologue to Revenge is available to pre-order now, at least the ebook version is, and it's only 99 cents until launch day, which is September 17th. Then the paperback version will also be ready. I'll post the link to the pre-order in the description to this episode. And today, we have a short commercial. Here's a little bit of trivia about Alexei's half-brother, Sergei Nevansky. Alexei often uses Sergei Nevansky as a cover name, for example, in my series A Perfect Hatred. And Alexei's son, Peter, names his second child, Sergei, after Alexei's half-brother. That's actually a Russian and Ukrainian cultural thing. They repeat the names of significant ancestors down through the generations, and sometimes even within generations in different aspects of a family. So yeah, probably a Russian plot to confuse genealogists. Okay, let's read a bit now from Prologue to Revenge. Prologue to Revenge opens after my, Alexei, and Sergei have taken cover in a cave among the mountains in Afghanistan. They are the only survivors of an attack by the Mujahideen on Sergei's tank unit. Mai has maybe a broken ankle, at least a badly sprained one, and they're trying to figure out how to elude a band of Mujahideen who are tracking them. Then, the last person Mai and Alexei expect to encounter in Afghanistan makes a surprise appearance. Prologue to Revenge 1982, Soviet-Occupied Afghanistan Alexei Bukharin doubted the flimsy splint from the Soviet Army field medical kit would help much. Still, he used strips of gauze to tie the two pieces in place as tightly as he could without cutting off any circulation to his partner's foot. Not that they had anywhere to run. 
The cave had seemed like a good idea, but Sergei hadn't yet found a way out. Outside, a contingent of Mujahideen closed in on their position. He, Sergei, and my Fisher had three rifles and a finite amount of ammunition among them. My winced when he tied the last piece of gauze to secure the splint. Too tight? he asked. She shook her head. Even well away from the daylight at the cave's opening, he could still see she was tight-lipped in pain. Hurts like bloody hell, she murmured, but gathered herself to stand, or at least make the attempt. Stay still for a while. Keep your weight off it, Alexei said. Let Sergei finish his recce. I can't believe I was so damned clumsy. I could kick myself, Mai said, settling back against the cave wall with a sigh. He couldn't believe she'd been that clumsy as well. Granted, they were in a rush climbing toward the cave complex before the Mujahideen could spot them. She'd slipped on a loose outcrop of rock and slid twenty or more feet down the hillside, jamming her right boot between two rocks. It had taken Alexei a good fifteen minutes to work his way down to her. By then she'd wrenched her foot free, but was in blinding pain and fighting the urge to voice that. With her in a fireman's carry, it had taken him close to a half hour to return to the path, leading to what they'd hoped was a safe haven. But Sergei, peering through his binoculars from the mouth of the cave, had delivered the bad news. At least a dozen Mujahideen were headed their way. Well, they do not seem to be in rush, Sergei had murmured. Perhaps we were lucky, and they did not see us. Alexei thought that unlikely, but he was the pessimistic one, not Sergei. Yet, given Mai was essentially immobile, all they could hope for was the scouting party to ignore the cave. Alexei took the boot he'd removed from Mai's injured foot and removed its laces. It's broken, isn't it? she asked. I can't tell. Either that or severe strain. I'm going to work the boot back on over the splint and relace that as tight as I can to give you more support. But rest it for now. Let the swelling go down a bit. We can't dawdle here for long, she said. You heard, Sergei. Maybe they missed us. They're likely waiting us out or waiting for dark to rush us, more like it. His exact, unvoiced thought. Rest he repeated. Let the swelling go down. The sound of a kicked rock from behind him in the cave sent his hand to his sidearm, Mai's to hers. They both saw the flashlight at the same time. Sergei Nivonsky turned it off when he came into the dim light to save the torch's battery. Anything? Alexei asked in Russian. Sergei shook his head. Tunnel looks man-made, but what do I know? It goes on for maybe 30 meters and opens into a larger cavern. There is a pool of water there so we can refill canteens, but I could not find a way out of it. We go in there, we are trapped like, how do the Americans say it, like monkeys in barrel, yes? Close enough. How wide is the tunnel? For you and me, shoulder width. We could get inside, set up for crossfire and pick them off as they came in. Alexei said. 
Sergei shrugged and replied, For a while, until they radio for reinforcements, another shrug, or we run out of ammunition. A tour in Afghanistan had made a pessimist of Sergei after all. Alexei dry-washed his face with both hands. He hated not having options, especially with his partner and his brother in the balance. It is our only choice right now, Alexei said. We will rest for a bit and move into the cavern in a half hour or so. You and I should alternate watching cave mouth, Sergei said. If they attack, one of us could lead them away from here, while the other two hide in the cavern. Well, that would be certain death, Mai said. Yabigochenbistra, Sergei said, grinning. I run very fast. Not to mention, if it is my watch, she said, nodding toward her foot, I will not be running anywhere, fast or slow. I think he means he and I will be trading watches, Alexei said. I'm not an, Mai began, an invalid, but you are. Not your fault, but our reality right now, Alexei said. No further discussion. Rest your foot for when you will have to be on it. Mai started to speak, and Alexei held up a hand. The look she gave him wasn't hospitable, but he hadn't expected it to be. Sergei, however, caught the byplay. I will go take first watch. Crouched low to the ground, Sergei edged his way down to the cave's mouth and settled down to watch for movement. Alexei dug through the meager med kit again. Russian equivalent of aspirin, he said back to English. Take some now if we're moving in a bit. He handed the small bottle to Mai. She read the details on the bottle. Each tablet was about 750 milligrams. One should do for now. She swallowed it with a small sip from her canteen. When she handed the bottle back to Alexei, he waved at her to keep it. After a moment, she touched his arm. He looked at her, frowning, almost angry, but eased when he saw her expression, somewhere between acceptance of their fate and fear. She nodded toward the cave mouth. Don't let them take me alive, she said. You know what they'll do to a woman. No, negative thinking, he said. Not negative, realistic. Promise me. He leaned toward her, almost wanting to kiss her. I promise we will make it out of here. That earned him an eye roll. How? A shrug. Somehow, let me worry about that. Up the hillside and into the cave came a man's whistling, a specific pattern, then a repeat. Three short, a long and a short, short then long, long, short, long, a single short, and it repeated again. Mai and Alexei looked at each other. In unison, they said, Snake? Edwin Snake Terrell Jr., CIA, squatted at Mai's feet. His eyes narrowed at her. He pointed to her splinted foot. Please tell me that happened from kicking his ass, he said, nodding to Alexei. He hasn't given me a reason to kick his ass today, she replied. His eyes on the cave mouth where Sergei and a single Mujahideen Terrell had brought with him stared at each other. Alexei asked, how did you know we were in here? 
Well, lucky for you, I'm the only one who saw you three duck inside. And yet you brought a mouge in with you. Terrell's eyes shifted to the effete-looking man, and he lowered his voice. Bastard sticking to me like fucking glue. Don't worry, a little bakshish, and he'll forget he saw you. Why is he glaring at me? Mai asked, returning the glare. Osama, Terrell called to him in Arabic. Is there a problem? The woman should be covered and veiled and stoned for being a whore to these men, came the angry reply. Terrell translated and said to Osama, The man with me is her husband. Relax. More Arabic from Osama and Terrell laughed, telling Mai, He says you're ugly, which means he has the hots for you. Terrell addressed Alexei. Is she mobile at all? No, Alexei replied. Yes, Mai said. Terrell sighed. Well, which is it? We won't know until I try to walk on it, Mai said. I want her to rest and let the swelling go down a bit more. I'll put her boot back on to strengthen the splint, Alexei said. Is it broken? Terrell asked. I don't know. Terrell frowned and looked over his shoulder again. His voice low once more, he said to Alexei, Turn the Ivan over to the Muj, and I can get you two out of here. No, Alexei said. No? No, we stay together. Look, I got the word you two were here to observe. The Ivan's not part of that. A small price for your lives. Tell him, Mai said. Tell me what? It's none of his business, Alexei said. What's none of my business? Mai and Alexei exchanged a look. Then Alexei lowered his voice as well. The Soviet soldier is the sole survivor of your Mujahideen's ambush on his tank unit. And he's my brother, he said. As in your brother in communism? No, as in he and I have the same mother, but different fathers. Well, shit, are you related to half of Russia? No, only a significant section of Ukraine. Well, shit, this complicates things. Osama there won't be happy until he gets some blood on his hands. He's from the Saudi bin Laden tribe, uh, construction, you know. Daddy's youngest or some shit, here to fight for Allah. However, he manages to stay out of the actual fighting. However, I gotta give him something to save face, you know. Why? Mai asked. He's, well, he's saving some taxpayer dollars by financing the small arms and some vehicles for the Muj in this area. Langley says to keep him happy so his money keeps flowing. He's not getting my brother or my wife, Alexei said, ignoring Mai's grimace. Give me a minute, Terrell said. Let me think. Does your brother speak English? No, Alexei said. Is he telling me the truth? Terrell asked Mai. Well, bloody hell, yes, she replied. Does Osama? No. Alexei smiled and said, I'll have to take your word, I suppose. Well, fuck you, Terrell hissed. He looked into the dark maw of the tunnel. Did you find the other cavern? Yes, Alexei replied, but there's no way out of it. Well, what about the other tunnel? Alexei raised his eyebrows in a query and waited for Terrell's answer. Oh, it's hidden by an optical illusion. 
that second tunnel leads to an extensive complex of them, some natural, some blasted out by the British last century, and some the CIA has added. That complex of tunnels is particularly important to us, so knowledge of it has to be compartmentalized. I trust you and her with the knowledge, but not him. Terrell nodded toward the cave mouth. Osama or my brother, Alexei asked. Neither. Turning his back to the cave mouth, Terrell reached inside his shalwar and brought out a paper that had been folded multiple times. A map, Alexei said. Yes, this is the only copy. I've memorized the layout, but I'd appreciate getting it back from you whenever your operation is over. It cannot, under any circumstance, fall into Soviet or Mujahideen hands. I'm giving it to you with that understanding. Agreed? Agreed, Alexei said. Terrell looked at Mai. You hold him to that, he told her. No need. He gave you his word. How do we explain it to Sergei? Who's Sergei? Oh, the brother, Terrell said, rolling his eyes. I leave that up to you, but he can't lay an eye on it. Got it? Of course, Alexei said. Terrell used his broad back to hide, slipping the map to Alexei, who deftly tucked it inside his shirt. All right, Terrell said. Here's what I'm telling Osama, who doesn't know about the tunnel complex either. You three have agreed to surrender in the morning, but I'm giving you a night to rest because it's a long trip back to his camp. He and I will take up a position outside. Once we leave, the three of you get into that cavern and into that second tunnel. When you're in the cavern, look for the trio of stalactites. You'll see what looks like a solid wall with a notch cut into one side. You can slip behind that wall at that point, and a few feet later, you're in the second tunnel. Got that? Yes, Alexei said. Why do you want this in that second tunnel? Because I'm going to tell Osama I convinced you to surrender in the morning, but I'm going to let him collapse the mouth of the cave with an RPG. You're going to what? Mai asked, remembering to keep her voice low. You heard me. He'll go back to camp and brag to his fellow ragheads that he sealed three Shuravi in a cave. Win-win. So when he and I leave the cave, the three of you hustle your asses into that second tunnel. That'll put you far enough away from the explosion. But move quickly. He looked at Mai's foot again. Well, as quick as you can. I won't be able to stall him long. Oh, and you have four days to clear the tunnels and come out somewhere. That's about as long as I can distract my clingy friend there. Mai looked at Alexei and murmured, Four days. Alexei shrugged yet again and said, It's all we've got, so we make it work. And being sealed in here? You know Terrell doesn't give a fuck about me, but he'd do anything to save you. Terrell smiled when Mai blushed. All right, I think that's a good introduction to Prologue to Revenge. And remember that map. It comes back into play in the novel Revenge, book two of Meeting the Enemy. Today's the 1st of September, and I'm looking forward to cooler temps, breaking out my mostly black autumn wardrobe. I do write about spies, you know, so I wear a lot of black. 
and sipping my pumpkin spice latte. Don't judge me. I'm looking forward as well to the trees changing color. Where I live, the sight of the mountains is pretty spectacular in the time of the year coming up. But of course, I never, ever let that distract me from keeping an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast and stand with Ukraine.